when you are threatened, when you feel under attack, you get defensive. It's just reality. If you ever watch Star Trek, this is the moment when you see the alien ship approaching and Captain Kirk says, shields up, red alert. And all of a sudden you go into this defensive mode and you perceive that threat coming towards you as a possible attack. And so you're gonna defend the ship, your team, and yourself. Fire phasers. The truth is you and I live this every day. It's not the enemy ship that comes on the horizon, right? It's your wife saying, we need to talk. Shields up, red alert. The boss says, step into my office. Shields up, red alert. The IRS calls and says, we need to talk. Or, or here's the classic, your teenager says, you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> Fire phasers, right? Because we deal with these threats every day and we tend to have a defensive response. Have you ever felt threatened by God? You may have never thought about it in those terms. But the truth is, we grow up as children and we hear God is love, we hear how great God is, how he's this wonderful creator, but the truth is that you don't have to be very old, 10, 11, when you realize God's gonna challenge the way you live. God's gonna come to you at some moment and say, that's not right, that's not the way you should live, you need to live this way. God's gonna come to you and say, look, I, I, I want you to have a different value system. I want you to love your enemies. God's gonna come to you and say, I, I want you to believe something different than everybody else believes. God's gonna come to you and say, I have specific, some specific thoughts about how you need to live out your sexuality. God's gonna come to you and he is gonna say, look, the way you treat people, that's what matters. Do you love people? Do you love your enemies? And God will challenge you. And when he challenges you, It'll feel like a threat. And the question is, what's your response? Now, it's important that we get clear. Okay, God does not threaten us. God does not challenge us because he's a mean God, because he wants to make your life difficult or he wants to make your life hard. God wants a better life for you and that means he wants you to live in a contrary way to the way everybody else says you ought to live. And somehow that is so hard for us to trust and to believe. And the scripture just read, the trial of Jesus, the first trial before the Jewish leaders, it's actually a story about religious elite people being threatened by the very God they claim to serve. Now this trial takes place after Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, he's been arrested, he's taken to the high priest's house, and there a trial begins. And, and this is where we'll pick up the story in verse 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. Okay, so who are the chief priests and who's the Sanhedrin? The chief priests were a branch of a priestly family that had acquired power and they tended to have the final say in who was the chief priest 
that the Romans would select year to year. So it always came from the same family, uncles, cousins, grandfathers, sons, grandsons. That's the way it kind of went. It was a family thing. So they were the aristocracy. And to be the chief priest was not just a religious office. It also had a political function. Because the Roman governor did not stay in Jerusalem. He visited there a few times a year, but his headquarters were elsewhere. So the chief priest functioned as the leading government official when the Roman governor was out of town. Now here's the odd thing. When you give a religious leader political power, what does he tend to focus on? His religious responsibilities or political power? Yeah, you know the answer. Some things don't change. The Sanhedrin was a group of Jewish men, 71 men, and the members of this chief priest family would have comprised about a third of that group. So it's a family deal. And then the other third would have been comprised by the scribes. The scribes would have been the religious intellectuals, the educated. These guys would run temple schools that would meet in the temple precinct. And then the other third would have been the elders who would have been the wealthy Jewish landowners in and around Jerusalem. Now, all of that's important to remember who is hearing this trial the, the evidence that's going to be presented. And, and you'll notice Matthew tells us they're looking for false evidence. They can't find real evidence. And so to this hastily called meeting, they're trying to assemble somebody who will give them the verdict they want. Does this sound fair to you? Does this sound right? I mean, isn't there something fundamentally flawed with the system that says, okay, we're going to have a trial. We know you're guilty. We want to put you to death. We just don't know what the evidence is yet. Clarence Jordan uh, was a New Testament scholar, and he did a translation of the New Testament. And in that translation, he talked about uh, Jesus not being crucified, but Jesus being lynched. Because Clarence had grown up in South Georgia, and in the era before the Second World War, he had seen men lynched because of the color of their skin. If a black man was accused of a crime, they went ahead and convicted him and punished him without ever caring about the evidence. That's not that long in our past, folks. And that's what they're doing to Jesus. Without evidence, they want to put him to death. So what happens? Verse 60. They did not find any. Even though many false witnesses came forward. So they've got all these witnesses. They come forward. They're all lying. But they can't agree. And according to the rules they followed, you have to have two witnesses agree before you can convict somebody. Now, now this always leads me to scratch my head and say, wait a minute. If they're so intent about following, I mean, about... Um, Hang on, if they're so intent about putting Jesus to death, why are they such a stickler about following the rules of having two witnesses? It's amazing that the tricks our minds play on us, our souls. If, we, if we're doing something that we're convinced is right, and we can't quite do it in the right way, oftentimes we will become a stickler for procedure. You've seen this. That's what's happening here. 
And finally, two come forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So they finally get two witnesses to agree. And Jesus had said something like this, but he was referring to his body. But they twisted his words against him. And this is going to become the linchpin. This is what really infuriates them, that this man threatened the temple. Why is that such a big deal? What's the number one industry in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus? Anybody here ever been to Orlando or Kissimmee? Anybody ever been to Kissimmee? Okay. Um, My mother was born in Kissimmee. My grandmother was born in Kissimmee. My great-grandmother was born in Kissimmee. Got deep roots there. I spent every Christmas of my life up until I was about 21 or 22 in Kissimmee. And I can remember as a child, the day after Christmas, when all the presents had been opened and we were still at my grandmother's house, we were in Kissimmee and there was nothing to do. Because Kissimmee was a cow town. It was, it was home of the largest livestock market in the state. There were big ranches surrounding it, all of whom were distant relatives who did not share the wealth. And, and it was basically a bunch of cowboys. They actually had a monument. This was the, this is true. This is the, they had a monument that was the second leading attraction in Kissimmee, which fe- featured every state rock. That was the second leading attraction in Kissimmee in 1965. What's the number one industry in Kissimmee right now? Tourism. As the natives say, the big rat came to town. What's the number one industry in Jerusalem in Jesus' time? Tourism. Religious tourism. Every year, between 300,000 and 750,000 people came to Jerusalem, this city of about 25,000, for the Jewish festivals, to worship at the temple, to offer sacrifices. It was a tourism town. And people came from all over the Mediterranean basin to worship in Jerusalem. Now, if you're going any distance to get to Jerusalem, do you take a lamb with you? No. You wait until you get there and you buy the lamb. Guess who controls the sheep trade at the temple? The chief priests. And if you wanted to go to an elite school, like the temple school, think in terms of Yale or Harvard or Duke. Going to the final four, just thought I'd say. Well, you went to the temple schools. Who controlled the temple schools? The scribes. And when you're there, being a tourist in Jerusalem, well, you'll need a place to stay. You'll need something to eat. Guess who controls those, the wealthy landowners? Do you start to see the picture come together? The people who are trying Jesus have developed a pretty comfortable life. They have developed a system And if Jesus is who he says he is, he destroys their way of life. He is a threat. If he tears down that temple, they go back to being regular people. 
If he's the Messiah, they lose their status. If Jerusalem is no longer the center of the religious world, but instead it's what happens in your own heart, then what happens to all the money we get for rent and food? Jesus is a threat. So how does Jesus react to all of this? Verse 62, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Now Jesus is not acting like a normal criminal, is he? Normal criminal in that context, hearing this evidence, would have been saying, well, that's not true. That's a lie. Those two men, they twisted my words. That's not the way it happened at all. That's what a normal criminal would do. But Jesus is not normal, and he is not a criminal. I think Jesus is silent because there's nothing to say in the face of all these lies. He's not going to dignify the lie with an answer. This is courageous silence. And so Caiaphas, very frustrated with Jesus, puts Jesus in this double bind. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, if, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You see how eager Caiaphas is to convict Jesus? If Jesus answers yes, then Jesus will be bound by what everybody in that time thought a Messiah should be. They thought a Messiah was going to come on clouds of glory and that he was going to bring an army, gather the army, throw out the Romans, reestablish the Davidic kingdom, bring peace and prosperity. There would be two cars in every garage and a chicken in every pot. Doesn't that sound like a politician? If you vote for me, I'll fix everything wrong in our country. Just vote for me. That's the way they thought about a Messiah. Now, if Jesus answers no, well, then he's a liar. And all of his ministry and everything that he had taught his disciples comes unraveled. So Caiaphas has created this lose-lose situation for Jesus. But I want you to listen to Jesus' answer, and I want you to see how brilliant he is. Verse 64, you have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So this is the first time Jesus speaks, and he tells Caiaphas, you've said so. Literally, in Greek, it says, you say. Caiaphas says, are you the Son of the living God? You say. If I had been Jesus, I think I would have said, you better believe it, buddy. But Jesus has this incredibly secure soul. He knows who he is. The question is, do you know who he is? Does Caiaphas really know who he's dealing with? 
do you really know who you're dealing with? See, because I, I think there are those among us who would say, yes, Jesus is my Lord. He is my leader. I do my life in accordance with his instructions. But let's be honest, for a lot of us, we are saying, hey, Jesus is the one that I want to get me out of hell and into heaven. Jesus is the one that I want to do miracles in my life. Jesus is the one that, that basically I think he's a teacher. I'm not sure if he's anything else. Who you say Jesus is matters. Now, in case you think Jesus is waffling, he says three things that really establish that he knew who he was. He first of all says, the son of man. Now we hear that and it goes, what does he mean by that? Well, Jesus referred to himself often in the Gospel of Matthew as the son of man. And it's a term from the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel called himself the Son of Man. And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's echoing Ezekiel, and he's saying, I'm a prophet. But in the book of Daniel, the Messiah, the coming reigning one, is also called the Son of Man. And Jesus is saying, I'm not just a prophet. I'm also this Son of Man. I'm the Messiah. And remove all doubt, he says, you'll see me sitting at the right hand of the Almighty. The right hand of God was reserved for the Messiah. It was the seat of honor. Jesus is saying, that's my seat. And Jesus is saying, and then you'll see me coming on the clouds of heaven, just like you thought the Messiah would. Now, we look at this and we say, okay, Jesus here is talking about the second coming, and we get that. But you see, their beliefs were... You can't be the Messiah unless you do it the way we think you ought to do it. The Messiah has got to come first on the clouds. The Messiah can't first be born in a stable and laid in a manger. The Messiah can't first grow up in Nazareth. The Messiah certainly would have come to Jerusalem, the center of all religious life for Jews. He wouldn't have spent so much of his time up in this fringe area of Galilee This is a hard question. Does your belief system get in the way of you seeing God at work? Now, let me unpack this for you just a little bit. Everyone is a theologian. Everyone. Now, what's a theologian? Someone who studies or has a belief system about God. You all have one. Therefore, you are all theologians. Now, the question is, how good is your theology? See, I, I know people have a lot of erroneous thoughts about God. And even an atheist, they have a belief about God. And so the honest intellectual thing to do is actually ask yourself, hey, does my belief system get in the way of seeing God at work? Because clearly this religious elite group, this cream of Jewish society, they can't see the Messiah is right there. And, and if your way of thinking about God is not helping you expand and see God at work in all kinds of ways, chances are pretty good you've got a flaw in the way you think about God. Now, when Caiaphas hears this, he's outraged. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? So what's the deal with tearing your clothes? 
if you are in a blasphemy trial and someone utters the name of God, then you're supposed to tear your clothes and never wear them again as a sign that you've heard blasphemy. But Jesus has not uttered the name of God. You'll notice, even when he says it's sitting at the right hand, not of God, but at the right hand of the Almighty. But they considered it blasphemy. What's blasphemy? Blasphemy is having the wrong idea about the nature and power of God. We say this again, blasphemy is having the wrong idea about the nature and power of God. So who's the real blasphemer? Jesus or Caiaphas? Ironic, isn't it? Here is the very top guy, the most religious person, theoretically, the guy who is seen by the entire ethnic group of Jews as being the definitive voice of God. Who's the real blasphemer? It's Caiaphas. Don't you remember that little story that Jesus told in the Sermon on the Mount? About, hey, hey, don't try to take the speck out of somebody else's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. Hey, Caiaphas, I think you've got a log in your eye. Hey, Caiaphas, I think you've got your own set of assumptions about who the Messiah ought to be. Hey, Caiaphas, I think you've got your own comfort, your own way of living that you would feel threatened if Jesus really is the Messiah. And Caiaphas, by the way, I think you've got the whole nature of God wrong. That God is not about your comfort, your status. God is not about your power and how well you're doing in the eyes of all the nation that you lead. Don't you remember what Jesus said that God is really about? Hey, blessed are the poor in spirit. Don't you remember? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Hey, the kingdom of God is about the first being last and the last being first. The kingdom of God is about loving people like Jesus loves people. The kingdom of God is about self-sacrificing love, about a God who loves us so much that he lays down his life on a cross and he dies for us and then he comes back to life to give us a whole new way to live and new power. Is that Caiaphas' God? Which leads me to a, a real challenging question. Are you the real blasphemer? Do you look around on social media? Don't do it too long. You'll need to take a shower afterwards. Do you see the way everybody blasts everybody else? You're so wrong, you're so wrong. I'm right, my way's right, my way's best. Are we more interested in our own comfort, our own contentment, our own agenda to the point that we don't even really know the nature of God? Maybe the best way to do a gut check is check your prayers. Are you praying just for miracles? Or are you praying for God to give you strength so you can persevere? Are you, are you praying that God would bless you? Or are you praying to obey him? Are, are you praying 
for God to strike down your enemies? Or are you praying for God to enlarge your heart to love your enemies? Who's the real blasphemer? And could it be you that you're more interested in your comfort and your contentment than God's kingdom? So Caiaphas asked the question in verse 66, what do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. And they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? They all agree. Literally in Greek, it says, guilty, death it is. We finally got something out of him that proves our preconceived ideas. The elite, the powerful, the educated, the rich, all decide he has to die because he's too much of a threat. And they treat him with such contempt. And every time I read these verses, there's just part of my heart that melts. They spit on him. In a blasphemy trial, that's what you did. You would spit on the one convicted of blasphemy to show your contempt. And they hit him with their fists. Jesus is probably bound, so he can't respond. Just hit him with their fists. They slap him. And they say, prophesy to us. Prophesy to us. Tell us who hit you. And I tell you, if I had been Jesus, I would have prophesied some right then and there. I would have told him who hit me. I would have told him, and by the way, you who just struck me, you're cheating on your wife and you're lying in a business deal. And by the way, that girl that you've been having the affair with, she's pregnant and it's about to be a scandal. Believe me, I would prophesy. Aren't you glad I'm not Jesus? Yeah, I said that at last service. I got a hearty amen. This is the beginning of a day of abuse for Jesus. He is going to be humiliated with a humiliation that he doesn't deserve. He's gonna be the recipient of pain that is not his to bear. And he's doing it all for us. So I'm not gonna ask you if Jesus threatens you. Because the truth is, if you take Jesus seriously, he will. He will. He will come to you and he will challenge you. He will ask you to change something in your life. I just want to ask you, how does Jesus threaten you? Will he come to you in the pain of your marriage and say, stay faithful? Will he come to you when you want to lash out and say, wait a minute, there's more to this story, don't judge. Will he come to you and say, you know, your life isn't working. It's just not working. And if you go down this path, you're just buying more trouble. Here, here's what I know is going to happen for everybody who takes Jesus seriously. He will challenge you. And that will feel like a threat. And so if you are a follower of Jesus today, when you feel threatened by a word from God, let me use that phrase, 
And the word of God can come to you in all kinds of ways. It can come from internal conviction. It can come from reading the scripture. It can come from a sermon. It can come from a song. It can come from a life group experience. But when you feel threatened by Jesus, follow him anyway. When you feel threatened by Jesus, follow him anyway. Because no matter how it feels, his way will be best. It may not be comfortable. It may not make you rich. It may not make you powerful. You may not even be the best educated person. But if you follow the way of Jesus for your life, it will be the best life you can ever live. And that ultimately has to be our conviction. Those of us who are truly following Jesus, we may not do it perfectly, but we say, I am going to follow him. I may not understand it. It may make me uncomfortable. It may even be a threat to my way of life, but I am going to follow Jesus. That's the way to the best life possible. That's what we call eternal life. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, let's be honest. Chances are pretty good the reason you're not following Jesus is because he's a threat. And you know this. I think there is a God voice in our souls that says, look, this isn't good for you. And that voice doesn't really go away until we harden our hearts and really develop the gift of selective deafness like Pharaoh. but I think God's still speaking to you, and you know it, And because you know if you decide to follow Jesus, it means you're gonna have to change your life. I actually respect people who say to me, I know if I get serious and I follow Jesus, he's going to require me to change my life, and I just don't wanna do that. Okay, at least you're being honest. But let me tell you the next part of that discussion that I think you ought to have with yourself. If you continue on your present path, does that give you the life you want to have? If you continue on your present path, does that give you the life you want to have? My hunch is if you're really honest with yourself, you'll find the answer is no. So what I want to encourage you to do is not be like the ultimate religious leader, Caiaphas. Don't be like him. I want you to be like Jesus. I want you to have the courage to actually go forward even though you know it may hurt, even though you know you may have to give up something, even though you know that you are going to be challenged. I, I know that it sounds crazy, but if you'll go back to last week and you begin to live life with not my will but yours be done, it's the best way to live. So my hunch is, is that God has spoken to you today, some way, somehow. Something's challenged you. The question is, will you respond by saying, shields up, weapons ready? I don't want to do that, God. Or will you actually say no? Even as this feels like a threat, I'm gonna do what Jesus wants me to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
I begin by praying for those who've never accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord. I pray that today they will be courageous enough to say yes, that they will see clearly that your way of life is better, and that they will ask for forgiveness and commit to follow Jesus. I pray today for Christians, those of us who follow Jesus, and I pray, God, that you would help us today to not be blinded by our own comfort, but instead to follow Jesus, no matter how we feel. You have the words of life in you alone. Help us follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.